Being a teenager is hard. You have to manage your academic responsibilities, juggle your social life and extracurriculars. You're growing into your adult body. Parents can be strict, or they can neglect to guide you at all. And other kids can be really, really mean. According to the Canadian Red Cross, 89% of Canadian school teachers said that bullying and violence are a major concern in public schools. According to safecanada.ca, 47% of Canadian parents have at least one child who is a victim of bullying. But the stark reality of that statistic is that over half of bullied children never come forward about their experiences. Bullying can come in different forms. Teasing, intentional exclusion, threats of violence, intimidation, actual violence, harassment, humiliation, destruction of property, and more. Bullying is seen in schoolyards, online, and even in the workplace between adults. Bullying can be so severe and all-consuming that it can even end in young people taking their own lives. Some notable cases of this being Megan Mier and Amanda Todd. Sometimes they end in murder, Tyler Clementi and Rena Virk. Many of us have experienced bullying in school. It's a serious issue, but it also kind of acts as a coming of age. Many of us come out on the other side of it with emotional scars and insecurities, sometimes physical scars. But on occasion, episodes of bullying can dramatically escalate in violence. Today, I'm going to be telling you about Rena Virk, a 14-year-old girl from British Columbia in Canada who met an untimely death at the hands of people her own age. Rena's short and difficult life created long-lasting ripples across Canada. People were captivated by her violent death, and arguably more so about how such violence could be perpetuated by people so young. It's a tragic and yet fascinating case, one that has been studied in professional academia and taught in schools to a younger audience ever since it happened. If you don't already know Rena's story, today on the Crimopedia podcast, I'm going to be telling you about it. And with that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Rena Virk was born on March 10th in 1983 to loving parents Manjeet and Suman Virk. Rina came from a very large family of immigrants from India, her father Manjeet being one of those people to make the brave endeavor of crossing the world and planting a foundation for growth in Canada. Her mom, Suman, was born in Canada, but her family was from India as well. As a family unit, they all lived together in Saanich, British Columbia, a sub-municipality of Vancouver. Rina's parents were devout Jehovah's Witnesses, Unlike most people from India who are often Hindu, Muslim, sometimes Christian, Sikh, or Buddhists. From my research, it seems like this was one of many things Rena struggled with in her family, and she reportedly found herself in conflict with her culture and identity. Even before you know too much about Rena, it's hard to even blame her for this. 
Despite being a beautiful young girl who was adored by her parents, they were a distinct minority within the overwhelmingly predominantly white population of Saanich. On top of that, the distinction as Jehovah's Witnesses made them a minority within their own minority community. It was difficult, and while there's obviously nothing fundamentally wrong with someone regarding their race or chosen religious affiliation, we all know that kids can be harsh. Rena's family lived in an area called View Royal, a quiet, middle-class, mostly white suburb, and this made her family stand out amongst the crowd. Rena had much darker skin than her white peers, and her family, especially her parents, I should say, were more enthusiastic about their religion than most of the other people in that area. As you can imagine, when living amongst a privileged cohort of white teenagers, the bullying started pretty quickly for Rena, and it started with name-calling, as it does for most of us. Rena was made fun of for being different in their eyes. She was called chubby, she was made fun of for her race, and pretty much every name a child can call another, Rena got called that at least once. This resulted in Rena feeling internally conflicted and angry, on top of everything a normal teenager experiences with their ever-changing hormones and mood swings, Rena was having an identity crisis. She was vastly different than the majority of her peers, and that certainly wasn't going under the radar. Anyone who's been bullied will tell you that it can be all-consuming, and for Rena, it became that way very fast. Rena began to lash out at her parents and their strict religion, which evidently came alongside a strict set of rules that other children in the community didn't have to follow because their parents weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. Rena seemingly desired freedom more than anything else, freedom from her parents' rules and freedom from the bullies at school, two things that it didn't seem like she would get for a very long time. This manifested as anger against her parents, but deep down, Rena desired nothing more than acceptance from her peers, and so she began to defy her parents and even her own moral code to achieve that. But even though Rena was breaking rules at school and at home just to try and fit in and make friends, the bullying was relentless, and her parents quickly suspected that this was why Rena had begun lashing out so early in life. Rena would pick fights at home with her parents, and then retreat to her bedroom for hours alone, fighting with herself in her own mind. From a very early age, Rena was suffering from what we can only assume was depression, on top of combating bullying and everything else that came with being a young person. In 1994, when Rena was about 11 and a half years old, she would switch schools in hopes of ending the patterns of bullying she had been experiencing all throughout her childhood. Rena was incredibly resilient and adaptable despite everything she had been through, and it seemed like she was adjusting well at her new school. She was becoming more social, seemed excited about being able to meet new people, and even successfully made a friend. Unfortunately, however, for reasons unclear from my research, this friend would abandon Rena and began to facilitate the same kinds of bullying she was facing at her old school. Thus, the torment began again, and the cycle of constant alertness, low self-esteem, depression, and not feeling safe anywhere would continue. 
1996, Rena would graduate and move on up out of elementary school and onto middle school, and she enrolled in the Colquitts Middle School. Rena once again met new people and tried her best to make friends, despite knowing that on two separate occasions, it had never really worked out for her before, but she was resilient. It was around this time when Rena's outbursts at home were starting to worsen. The pressure was mounting for Rena to actually acquire a social life and be accepted. She had spent so many years being bullied that she was tired of the restrictions her parents placed on her and wanted some freedom because it seemed like the people she was going to be accepted by were the ones who were notorious for breaking rules. The people that Rena was beginning to associate with at school were the kids that brazenly ignored their curfews, drank even though they were 14, 15, and they were smoking cigarettes and weed at school, after school, on the weekends, wherever they could. Obviously, doing this kind of stuff was not at all compatible with the belief system that Rena's parents subscribed to, and really, I think any parent would have a problem with their middle school-aged child acting this way. But again, Rena was desperate for acceptance from her peers, and was able to marginally gain some of that by acting in the same ways that they did. She began to stay out late, drink, smoke, and the fights she would pick with her parents were becoming explosive. Not only was she sick of the rules that they had for her, but she was also sick of the punishments she would receive for acting this way. It was a toxic situation for everyone in the Verk household, and her defiant new group of friends, viewed as the quote-unquote cool kids, were not helping at all. In fact, the emotional roller coaster Rena was seemingly riding every day was only exacerbated by them. When Rena turned 13 years old, one of her peers had told her that it was easy to get out of her home if she wanted to, easy to escape the grasp of her extremely strict parents. This was obviously enticing to Rena. No rules, no regulations, and freedom to do whatever she needed to for social acceptance. This friend told Rena that all she had to do was tell the local Saanich police that she was being abused at home, and she would be placed into a group home just as some of them had done. The theory seemed legitimate, as a lot of these alleged friends that Rena had had also been living in group homes, and they were able to be free, stay out all night, and not worry about school. They dressed how they wanted to, they smoked, they drank, they acted out, and nobody ever punished them for it besides maybe some teachers in school, but they didn't even really care about that. Rena's parents, Suman and Manjeet, were obviously extremely concerned about this new friend group that Rena had made, and the behaviors that she was latching onto, but they were vastly unprepared for what Rena would do to escape her family. Rena Verk would do exactly what her friend suggested her to do, and would report to police that her father, Manjeet Verk, was abusing her at home, and, like her friend predicted, she was promptly removed. Let me interject myself here for a second. Believe women. Always. However, these allegations against Manjeet Verk were thoroughly investigated, and Rena's behavior has since been investigated in a multitude of academic and authoritative settings. The statements made by this friend who suggested Rena tell police that she was being abused are corroborated through testimony. Consequently, and compounded by lack of evidence, all allegations made against Rena's father were dropped and he was not prosecuted for any forms of abuse. But evidently, Rena would continue to live outside of her family home. 
and I can only presume that everybody in her life had agreed that this would be for the best. At first, Rena was living with her grandparents, but things continued to get worse for her. She was associating with teenagers who were claiming to be a part of gangs. She even at one point claimed that she was in a gang. Rena was grasping onto straws, trying to hold on to the acceptance from her peers that she had pleaded for for her entire life. And finally, just as she had hoped for, Rena ended up in a group home. But it was not as straightforward or as pleasant as she would have hoped. She would be there, but then apologize to her parents for acting out, move back in, lash out again because of the rules or because she wanted to do something that her parents disagreed with, and then move back out. As you can imagine, academics weren't exactly on Rena's radar either. Her family life, her potential career, everything seemed to be falling apart at only 14 years old. And on top of this, Rena's life was becoming so chaotic that her precious social life also began to fall apart, and the cool girls she surrounded herself with began to turn against her, often as teenagers do. At this point, there was no aspect of Rena's young and impressionable being that was stable. Everything for her was in shambles, and somehow it was about to get significantly worse. In late 1997, when the fabrics of Rena's beloved friend group was starting to unravel, the blame was entirely placed on her. Once again, she was cast out as the black sheep, and her lifestyle was starting to catch up with her. She was accused by some of her girlfriends of spreading rumors about another girl in hopes of trying to steal her boyfriend. It wasn't a secret, or frankly hard to imagine with all of her lifelong struggles, that Rena had little experience in the relationship and love department, especially compared to her peers who were inappropriately matured for their age. So it wasn't hard to imagine that Rena might be trying to steal someone's boyfriend out of jealousy. And one of these girls accused Rena of stealing her address book, something that existed before the age of smartphones and contacts, and calling other people to start rumors about this girl again in order to get her friends and her boyfriend to dislike her and like Rena instead. Whether this was true or not, the advent of these targeted accusations would end up being the catalyst for the shockingly violent and early end of Rena's life. On the evening of Friday, November 14th, 1997, Rena was invited to a party by one of her friends near the Craigflower Bridge in View Royal. To Rena, I'm sure this seemed to be a bit of a relief, given the emotional and social strain she was enduring during this time. Finally, her friends were starting to come around again after what seemed like possibly an acute episode of normal teenage conflict. On this night, she was still living in a group home, but had been staying with her parents in their family home for an overnight visit. An arrangement I can only assume was something they agreed upon as a family unit to try and repair their broken relationship. Rena had called her parents around 10.40 p.m. As long as she was staying under their roof, her curfew was still in effect, and she let them know that she would be home before her 11 p.m. curfew time. She had about 20 minutes to get there, but this was not true. She was actually on her way to this party, taking place underneath the Craigflower Bridge. I have to admit, I've done this as a teenager before, 
I told my mom I was on my way home so she would go to bed and stop worrying about me. If I was an hour or two late, so what? At that time, and at that age, neither I or, evidently, Rena fully understood the consequences of our actions. Rena had no idea that she was walking into a trap. When she arrived, a group of 20-something-odd teenagers were already there. They were drinking and smoking, as usual, and things seemed okay for a brief moment. That was until 14-year-old Rena was suddenly surrounded by a group of girls who would later be called the Shoreline Six, referring to the school they went to, Shoreline Middle School. These six girls are represented in media and in court documents as N.C., who is self-admittedly named Nicole Cook, N.P., M.G.P., who is self-admittedly someone named Missy Grace Pleach, C.A.K., G.O., and Kelly Ellard. Also in attendance was a young male named Warren Golowski, a name and face entirely unfamiliar to Rena. They all began to confront Rena about the rumors she allegedly started, which quickly spiraled into a circle formation swarming her with verbal assaults. Before long, it became physical. It began with pushing and shoving Rena, which escalated into hitting, punching, and kicking, a brutal climax of violence to culminate the lifelong bullying and torment Rena had endured. But this wasn't the end of it, and given what Rena had allegedly done to some of these girls, they were seeking revenge. One of them, reportedly Nicole Cook, put out a lit cigarette on Rena's forehead and there were several reports of girls trying to burn off Rena's hair and set it on fire as she was pinned on the ground underneath the bridge. Many of the people involved in jumping Rena didn't even know her, including Warren Golowski, as I mentioned, who proudly engaged in the punching and kicking of Rena as she called out, I'm sorry, with every blow. This type of mob mentality violence is sometimes coined as the Lord of the Flies syndrome. If you've read the book or seen the movie adaptation, you'll know what this refers to. In the words of an article published on Psychology Today, written by Dr. Laura Betzig, the boys of Lord of the Flies were brought by a wrecked plane to Golding's paradisical Pacific Island, ran the gamut of human traits. Some were bloodthirsty or sadistic, others were fair-minded or smart, but every one of them became more or less of those things as time and opportunity wore on. Mob mentality on its own describes how people can be influenced by their peers to adopt behaviors that would otherwise go against their individual moral compasses. This is exactly what was happening to Rena. A large group of young teenagers were senselessly beating on her, even when most of them didn't know her only based on a series of rumors about what Rena had allegedly done. And this only stopped after one of the girls, reportedly a recreational kickboxer, prompted the group to stop beating on her as she knew it was getting quite serious. But this was only after Rena had been laying in the mud, begging for her safety. After the group disbanded, a bloodied and battered Rena Verk got up from the wet mud and began reportedly staggering up and across the bridge in an effort to just get home. The crowd that just beat Rena watched her as she stumbled and bled along the sidewalk with which she was walking along. However, two members of the group, K 
Kelly Ellard and Warren Golowski thought they couldn't let Rena walk away from them without suffering the full consequences of her alleged actions. Apparently, what had already been done to Rena simply wasn't enough, and so they followed her. As Rena was crossing the bridge, she was approached from behind and dragged to the underside of the opposite end of the bridge. She was made to remove her shoes and most of her clothing before Kelly and Warren began beating on her once again. Rena was exhausted and defenseless. The 14-year-old girl was incapable of fighting back against her attackers, and it didn't seem like they had any mercy. Before long, Warren Golowski smashed Rena's face into a nearby tree, which actually knocked her unconscious after two previous kicks to the head. The sheer violence happening against Rena was shocking, but still, after two brutal beatings, it wasn't enough. Kelly Ellard would drag Rena's unconscious body to the edge of the water flowing underneath the bridge and hold Rena's head under it until she was confident that Rena was no longer alive. Then, the two rolled Rena's body into the river and promptly left the bridge. At this point, Rena's curfew had obviously long passed, and her parents were concerned. However, given Rena's previous behavior, they figured she might just be disobeying again, and so before thinking that the worst could have possibly happened, they called her grandparents and some of her friends. Rena obviously wasn't at her grandparents, but one of the friends that the Verks called said that Rena was still at the party under the Craigflower Bridge when she left around 11 p.m. I'm sure, to her parents, this affirmed that Rena was once again just breaking her curfew intentionally and that she would have to face the consequences the next day. However, on that next day, November 15th, Rena was still nowhere to be found, and so her parents called the police. Saanich police allegedly hesitated to classify Rena as a legitimate missing person, simply due to her past behavior and being in and out of the child welfare system, but they still logged the incident, classifying her as a runaway. Rena's parents knew obviously she had run away and left home on several occasions, but they couldn't help but think that this situation was different. At some point, if Rena were to leave home, they would usually find out where she was. But by the 24-hour mark when there was no trace of Rena anywhere in the area, they knew something was seriously wrong. Unfortunately, as we all know because I just detailed it to you, Rena was deceased, and her body was floating in the river underneath the bridge called the Gorge Waterway, a narrow stream that connects the Victoria-British Columbia Harbour to the Portage Inlet, only just northeast of the View Royal area. Her parents had no idea. And this information would not be known to police for some time either, as the teenagers who were present the evening that Rena had died had made a pact together to not quote-unquote rat anyone out. It's unclear if all teenagers in attendance knew as a matter of fact that Kelly Ellard and Warren Golowski had murdered Rena after they beat her, but Kelly was certainly walking around the school triumphantly bragging about it. This was only the beginning of Kelly Ellard showing no remorse or accountability for her actions, and to her peers, it seemed quite obvious that she was proud of what she had done to Rena. She had successfully gotten the revenge that she craved, 
she was responsible for the death of Rena Verk, and she would subsequently be responsible for the rumor mill that evidently began circulating around her school and surrounding cliques of teenagers. She was even bragging to some that she was calmly smoking a satiating cigarette while holding Rena's head underwater. Consequently, several teachers at Shoreline Secondary had heard these rumors, but none of them elected to call the police. Again, this likely had something to do with these teenagers and their reputation. Their credibility was certainly questionable. But after Rena neglected to show face at home or at school for a few days, police were eventually called on November 21st, a full week after Rena was murdered, as the rumors heard by teachers seemed to be substantiated by Rena's distinct and prolonged absence. Unfortunately, these rumors would all be confirmed the following day, on November 22nd, in 1997, after police had dispatched a helicopter and dive teams to search the nearby George Inlet and surrounding waterways for the body of Rena Verk. They found her washed ashore along the George Inlet, about one kilometer, or just over half a mile from where she was killed, bloodied, battered, and with most of her clothes missing. Dr. Laurel Gray, the pathologist responsible for Rena's autopsy, confirmed that her cause of death was indeed drowning. There were 18 small pebbles lodged in Rena's airways and lungs, which indicated that despite the beating she endured, she was still alive and struggling to breathe while being held underwater by Kelly Ellard. However, the autopsy also revealed that the injuries Rena sustained as a result of being jumped on multiple occasions were enough to kill her on their own without the drowning even being necessary. Rena would not have even survived the walk home. Her internal injuries were comparable to someone who had been in a serious car accident with a severe brain injury and distinct bruising to her abdomen. There was a pattern of bruising on the back of Rena's head that was consistent with the shape of a shoe sole, and she had received a total of 12 to 18 seriously damaging blows to her head and face. Thankfully, once she was discovered, the legal process began fairly quickly, as there were several witnesses who had either heard or seen Rena being beaten on that night she was murdered. It didn't take long for police to identify the key players in Rena's demise either, which were the names I had mentioned previously, mostly being abbreviations, as those not suspected of the actual murder were protected under Canada's Youth Criminal Justice Act since they were minors. However, Kelly Ellard and Warren Golowski were exempt from the identity protection, as their involvement directly resulted in the death of 14-year-old Rena Verk. Three of the teenage individuals pleaded guilty to lesser charges relating to the beating, assault causing bodily harm, and the other three were convicted of the same offense, even though they didn't plead guilty initially. However, Kelly and Warren would be charged with second-degree murder in the death of Rena Verk. This was interesting to me, because although Rena was lured to the location with the intention of being harassed and jumped, it wasn't able to be proven that she was lured there with the intention of being killed. The choice to follow Rena as she walked away from the ordeal seemed to be made last minute by Warren and Kelly. It was not premeditated. So I personally think that this may be why the charge was not first degree. Regardless, it still comes with a pretty heavy prison sentence a sentence that both Kelly and Warren were being faced with, 
as they were being tried as adults. Kelly Ellard was born on August 9th in 1982, being only 15 years old when she murdered Rena. Throughout the investigation into Rena's death, despite allegedly bragging about it to her peers, Kelly consistently played the victim and acted as if she was being posed as the scapegoat in a crime she claimed to have nothing to do with. During the investigation, she would deny any and all legitimate evidence against her, including the presence of a black Calvin Klein jacket in her closet that had salt stains on the arms consistent with salt found in the water body where Rena's body was found. In a formal interview with RCMP Sergeant Krista Hobday, Kelly decided to blame the murder and the bulk of the violence on her friend, Nicole Cook, known in documents as NC. Kelly is quoted as saying about Nicole, she always says sick stuff, just weird, demented stuff. She wanted to bury someone. She thinks it's cool if you hurt people and it's not. Ladies don't do that kind of stuff. There's a lot to unpack here, especially regarding the fact that Kelly was trying to blame the crime on her friend Nicole, but also too, this reference to being ladylike is very interesting, as it was reported by her peers and her family that Kelly Ellard was anything but a conventional lady. However, this reference she made to Nicole Cook wanting to bury someone came from a phone call between Kelly and Nicole, one that consisted of threats against Rena, one that was also overheard by their parents. However, again, these teenagers were renowned misbehaviors, and their parents figured that these expressions of potential violence were a twisted and weird way of expressing their anger and frustrations. We know now that they were very, very wrong about this. These expressions were not benign. They were not harmless. And in fact, they were eerily foreshadowing. Nicole Cook, born in 1983, was actually living in a group home at the time of Rena's murder. And again, she was the one who put out her lit cigarette on Rena's forehead. Nicole participated in the punching and kicking of Rena, however, denied any responsibility for the subsequent violence that ensued. Interestingly, despite being implicated and blamed by Kelly Ellard, Nicole, on the other hand, would refuse to incriminate her friend. While Kelly was in one room telling RCMP Sergeant Hobday that Nicole was entirely responsible for Rena's death, even though Nicole was not even present when Rena died, Nicole had instead told police that their phone calls together did not consist of any violent conversation. She was adamant that nor her or Kelly would ever act in this way. And she's quoted as saying, We don't talk about murder, we just talk about cigarettes and makeup. Despite the stark lack of remorse demonstrated by both Nicole and Kelly, it was certainly interesting to see the discrepancy in loyalty between these two. Especially on Kelly's part, the complete refusal to take accountability for even being present at the crime resulted in her blaming the entire ordeal on one of her best friends. But Nicole was implicated in additional components of the crime aside from the punching and kicking. It was found out that she returned to the scene of Rena's murder the next day, accompanied by Missy Grace Pleach. They did this so they could retrieve the clothes and shoes that belonged to Rena that she was made to take off before Kelly killed her. They wanted to take them back to the group home they lived in and dispose of the evidence. Nicole was also implicated in coercion, as she forced another resident of the group home, 
someone named Stephanie in court documents, to phone the Virk family and console them while the search for their missing daughter was underway and both of them on the other end of the line knew exactly what happened and knew consciously of the conversations that happened beforehand where Kelly and Nicole were plotting the violence against Rena. Warren Glowatsky, on the other hand, was born on April 26th of 1981 in Medicine Hat, Alberta, and he never really knew Rena at all or plotted any violence against her. Consequently, it was entirely unclear and still is as to why he even involved himself so intimately with Rena's death, kicking her in the head and smashing her face into a nearby tree. The day after the murder on November 15th, Warren had actually went back to his girlfriend's house and asked her to bleach the clothing he was wearing when he helped kill Rena. Obviously, it was severely bloodstained. At first, while being investigated, Warren refused to take any responsibility for the murder of Rena Virk and was adamant that he was simply a bystander and was present at the party that night. However, his trial and subsequent conviction would be straightforward. And this is in contrast to Kelly Ellard, but we'll get there shortly. In 1999, two years after Rena had died, Warren was convicted of second-degree murder and was handed a life sentence by Judge Malcolm McCauley after declaring that Warren's testimony of being a bystander was, quote, incomplete and improbable, given his girlfriend's testimony of her being asked to remove the bloodstains from his clothes. Again, in contrast, Kelly Ellard's trial and conviction would take nearly a decade. Kelly Ellard would stand trial for Rena's murder a total of three times and was convicted twice. She was initially convicted in March of 2000 for second-degree murder, being 17 at this point. A lot of the prosecution's arguments against Kelly, who, again, was being tried as an adult, rested on witness testimony. Given how strong these testimonies were, Kelly would end up being convicted, but unfortunately, Given that many in attendance of Rena's beating and subsequent murder were quote-unquote delinquent teens with criminal records, their credibility was easily questioned on the stand. As much as Kelly's own discussion of her involvement with the crime to her peers should have made for an open and shut case as it seemed to be when she was handed the conviction, in February of 2003, the British Columbia Court of Appeals ordered a new trial on the grounds that the Crown, which is the legal prosecution in Canada, had improperly questioned Kelly by asking her to explain why so many of her peers testified that she boasted about Rena's murder. I'm not sure what exactly about this warranted a new trial. Regardless, this outcome was very upsetting to the Virk family and all of their supporters, as Kelly Ellard had not shown one ounce of remorse since Rena's death. It seemed like the conviction was deserving. Not only had she readily implicated herself in the crime, but in interviews with police, Kelly had been seen yawning, clearly bored, and even asked the officers during one of the preliminary interrogations if she would be done the questioning in time to go out with her friends. In 2004, however, the second trial would resume, and this time, Warren Glowatsky, who had been convicted of Rena's murder four years prior, testified against Kelly that he bore witness to her holding Rena's head under the water. I think it might have been harder to attack his credibility, as he had already been convicted for the same crime using the same facts, so his testimony was incredibly valuable. 
As the trial proceeded, Kelly had several outbursts, one of which being her yelling, I'm not a monster, and that, quote, I'm obviously going to get convicted. You've all got what you wanted. My life is ruined. A combination of damning witness testimony, especially from Warren, and Kelly's defense team somehow managing to portray her as an innocent teen who posed no threat to society at large, this second trial would ultimately result in a hung jury, eight to one in favor of a conviction. This hung jury result solidified for Kelly Ellard a bizarre disbelief that she would never actually be convicted for this crime. She was adamant that she would never serve time for Rena's death, and even demanded that her mother simply take her home when she was being interviewed by Saanich Police's Sergeant Ross Bolton. Quote, you own me, you are my mother, you can say I want to take her home, end quote. Kelly demanded to be removed from police custody and thought that her mother's rule would overpower that of the police. She didn't take any accountability for what she had done. There was no semblance of remorse, and it's almost like murdering someone for her came as easily as smoking the cigarette that she did while she was holding Rena's head under the water. A third trial would be ordered, and on April 12th of 2005, Kelly was, once again, convicted of second-degree murder that she committed. She was given an automatic life sentence in custody with no chance of parole for at least seven years, given she was 15 years old at the time of the murder. There was yet another appeal made by her defense team as Kelly refused to accept responsibility for what she had done and insisted on dragging the legal battle on further than it had already been. Kelly's defense team claimed that the presiding judge, Judge Morrison, made a critical mistake in admitting evidence about a Crown witness to boost their credibility. Given the vast majority of the prosecution's witnesses were 15 years old, and given that credibility was one of the only things the defense had to attack, this makes sense. However, the decision to admit this evidence was ruled, quote, harmless by the Supreme Court of Canada, and Kelly's conviction was upheld, upheld after eight years of judicial process. Warren Glowatsky, unlike Kelly, began reflecting on his actions pretty early once he was arrested. Since he was also a minor at the time of Rena's murder, he was also eligible for parole after seven years, which he ended up applying for. During his time in prison, Warren had discovered his indigenous heritage, something he didn't know about before. He was Métis, and consequently enrolled in restorative justice programs. Restorative justice is a large part of Canada's legal system, and there are certain programs aimed at incarcerated Indigenous people that exist to seek justice for the victims of their crimes while also repairing the generational wounds that Indigenous people suffered at the hands of the Canadian government and the Catholic Church. In general, it's a principle of justice that exists on the understanding that, quote, crime is a violation of people and relationships and is based on principles of respect compassion, and inclusivity. It encourages meaningful engagement and accountability, and provides an opportunity for healing, reparations, and reintegration." End quote. Doing this was a good thing for Warren. He wasn't just sitting down, serving his time, or making appeals. He knew what he had done, and as he finally came to terms with what he did not only to Rena and her family, but also the greater community at large, it reflected positively on him. He would end up meeting privately with Rena's parents, 
and would volunteer in the community to speak with at-risk youth who were on a similar path that he was when he was a teenager, and what consequently led him to prison. Years of self-improvement and actually taking accountability for his actions allowed Warren to be granted parole in June of 2007, a decade after Rena's death, with Rena's parents even being supportive of it as the loving, forgiving, compassionate, and generous people that they are. At the hearing, they even all shared a hug. Kelly Ellard, on the other hand, unfortunately continued to get herself in trouble after being incarcerated. She was found to be hoarding materials in her cells, presumably to prepare as weapons. She was also found to be engaging in years-long contraband methamphetamine binges. When she turned 30 in prison, a doubling of her lifespan from before she committed the murder, Kelly began exchanging letters with an individual named Darwin, a former felon himself, and Kelly would soon become pregnant after several conjugal visits. She was finally granted day parole in November of 2017, 20 years after Rena's death, but it was contingent on Kelly complying with several restrictions. No drugs, no alcohol, no associating with anyone who has a criminal history or history of substance abuse, and no contacting the Virk family. Obviously, the conditions of her parole came with supervised and monitored visits between her and her children, because if there was any chance that Kelly would get out of prison, she would have to prove herself to be a functioning member of society. It seemed to be kind of a risky move. After a psychological evaluation in 2016 concluded she had a moderate to high moderate risk of recidivism and future violence, but she insisted in her parole hearings that she was focused on trying to be a present mother for her children. And so, parole was granted. In the present day, Kelly Ellard now goes by Carrie Sim. Her parole was continued in 2021, but she still has strict parole conditions and regulated visits with her children. Unfortunately, however, the closest she has ever come to taking accountability for Rena's brutal murder was admitting that she did beat Rena within an inch of her life, but was only holding her head near the water to try and wake her up after Warren smashed her face against a tree. A large component of Rena's case that made it so popular across Canada was how the media portrayed her as a troubled teen who liked disobeying and breaking the rules. But really, Rena Virk was a victim of extreme forms of bullying, with little to no intervention by those with authority to do so, and felt so outcasted that she went to extreme measures to try and be accepted by her peers. Rena made poor choices and deeply hurt her parents, as I'm sure most of us have done when we were 14, 15, and 16. But that should never justify or explain how she stumbled into such a violent, untimely death. Framing Rena as simply a troubled teen only serves to discount how severe she was being bullied and harassed by other people her own age, and frankly, how little was done about it. There is no reason to bully people, regardless of their sex, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, race, gender identity, physical ability, or anything. And the path Rena ended up following is actually not entirely unique or out of the ordinary. Children who are bullied are more likely to suffer with severe mental distress just as she was, and are more likely to engage in risky behaviors to receive acceptance, to cope with their feelings, 
or to defend themselves. Being bullied can cause victims to become socially isolated, mentally and physically unwell, score lower on academic and professional performances, and have an overall lower quality of life. I actually wrote a little bit more about this on a blog for childabuseprevention.ca. Child Abuse Prevention for Everyone, or CAPE, is a student-led organization that I do a little bit of writing for sometimes, especially when I become passionate about a case or a cause involving children. Their mission is to create opportunities for families and awareness about child-related issues, which absolutely includes bullying, and is something that affects every single child in unique ways. Rena's story spoke to me, as I knew so many people that were victims of bullying in school, and again, it touches every person in a different way, even if they never experienced it. As a kid, you likely saw it if you didn't live it, or maybe you were the bully. It's critical to teach children about the effects of bullying and how it can create a ripple effect into adulthood, whether it escalates to a Kelly Ellard level of violence or not. As we've all seen, the consequences can be extremely severe. Somewhat serendipitously, the Virk family have dedicated so much of their lives to doing exactly this, educating the youth. They have used their grief over their daughter's short and difficult life as a catalyst for positive community change, implementing anti-bullying programs in many British Columbia schools, which were enacted with help from the provincial government. Manjit and Suman, Rena's parents, did public speaking in schools and in law enforcement, trying to educate people on how dangerous bullying can actually be. Consequently, they were awarded the British Columbia Anthony J. Holm Award of Distinction in 2009 for their contributions to crime prevention and community safety. As much as I could probably write an entire episode about Rena's parents' experience, if you're interested in hearing more about their perspective, Rena's father, Manjeet, wrote a novel about his daughter's life and death as well as his love for advocacy work called Rena, A Father's Journey. Rena's story isn't just about a troubled teen who found herself surrounded by the wrong people. Sure, that might be part of it, but her story is so much more complex. So much so that several academics have struggled to conclusively understand the psychology of everyone who was present the evening she was killed, as well as the people who knew her in the years of struggle leading up to it. Rena Virk was a beautiful, young, impressionable, but also sweet girl with an entire life ahead of her. And now, her story serves as an important lesson about bullying, and it's one I hope you all take with you as you raise or take care of children, or even as you go into the workplace and have to engage with people you don't like. Bullying is absolutely an epidemic in North American schools, and it's up to you, the individual, to do something about it if you see something happening. Thank you for listening to another episode of Crimopedia. Feel free to check out my short blog post about Rena's case and the impacts of bullying on children on CAPE's website at childabuseprevention.ca. I'll have a link to it on my website and my Instagram. CAPE also has a link on their website of community resources local to southwestern Ontario where I'm from. So if you or someone you know needs support of any kind, please do check that out. And lastly, please be kind to each other. You never know what someone's going through, and you never know how badly someone might just need a friend. 
Thanks again, everyone, and I'll see you here on May 31st of 2022 for the next episode of the Crimopedia podcast.